Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Oxford Policy Pod, based out of the University of Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government. I'm your host, Sruthi Palniapin, and as you all know, today is March 8th, International Women's Day. Breaking from our fortnightly podcast routine, Team Policy Pod is excited to present to you a very special bonus episode to mark this momentous day. Now, 2020 was intended to be a groundbreaking year for gender equality. It in fact marked the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action, what was considered to be the most progressive blueprint on women's rights adopted by countries. Instead, as COVID-19 continues to rage and ravage our communities, the hard-won gains made in the past decades are at risk of being rolled back. The pandemic has affected women and girls in every sphere, from health to the economy, security to social protection. Pre-existing inequalities have deepened, exposing them to greater vulnerabilities. So how have women been specifically hit by this pandemic? Which groups of women are the most at risk? How should countries devise gender-sensitive policies to mitigate this impact? And what's the way ahead? To unpack these questions, we'll speak to three experts who will also bring you on-the-ground field experiences from India and Brazil. Welcome to Oxford Policy Pod. So in the same way that the problem is complex, the solutions should be complex. Otherwise, we won't solve the problem. She was for sure on her edge, on her limit, because the amount of work that was imposed uh, to women during the pandemic was even higher. This lockdown has had a severe impact on food security and the hunger situation of households, particularly of those belonging to Uh, vulnerable communities, those where they depend on the informal sector for employment. We need policies that target specifically the most vulnerable women. Joining us now is Amanda Sadala. She is a consultant for fighting and preventing violence against women and girls. Currently, she consults for UNICEF Brazil, where she serves as a technical specialist for the creation of a national Brazilian app for teenagers to report violence and abuse. And recently, she worked as a consultant for the Malala Fund on the area of comprehensive sexuality education. Amanda holds a master's degree in public policy from Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government and a bachelor's degree in public administration from Getulio Vargas Foundation. Amanda, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here, especially considering that it comes from Blavatnik. Of course, yes. It's good to have (laughs) alumni come back and share their experiences with us on this podcast. So today we are talking about the effects of COVID-19 on women. So to open, can you give us an overview of what's happening now? So what's the overall pandemic scenario for women and girls? Yes, of course. Uh, In general, I would say that the impacts of crisis are never gender neutral. And COVID-19 is not an exception. Because of COVID, the level of gender-based violence has raised so, so much. The level of unemployed women has raised so, so much. So it doesn't mean if we're talking about a war, if we're talking about a health crisis, if we're talking about an economic crisis. All the crises have a gender perspective. So that's why we should take into consideration gender when we are developing policies to deal with COVID. 
And gender inequality is a very complex issue. So in the same way that the problem is complex, the solutions should be complex. Otherwise, we won't solve the problem. Yeah, thank you, Amanda, for that super helpful overview. It's definitely very important to focus specifically on women, as you said, especially during these moments of crisis. And I want to talk specifically about those economic effects of the pandemic. We know that women have lost jobs at nearly twice the rate of men. Nearly 50% of women have had to draw on money from their savings in order to stay afloat. And in general, women earn less and are disproportionately more in the informal economy, which we know has also been among the worst impacted due to the pandemic. So how do you think countries can deal with this economic fallout? So first of all, women are the majority of people who, who are working on informal jobs who are working as domestic workers. So it means that women are in the positions, are working positions where they don't have the work rights. And this affects especially women who lead their own business. So we need policies specifically for women who lead their own uh, business. We need policies specifically for single mothers because imagine that this woman uh, single mothers have been working the whole day and uh, they have children to take care and now they lost their jobs, they still need to take care of their children, they still need to put food on the table for their children and there is no way to do that. And what are some specific policies that you think would help alleviate some of these issues? So what are policies that can help lift up single mothers to help lift up women who are leading their own businesses? Do you think that Maybe childcare policies are one area in particular that governments should focus on? Yes, of course. So we need economic relief measures, right, that target specifically women. So first, we need, of course, that supporting uh, women with children is super important. That's true. But first of all, these this women need money. We're talking about money. This is the basic thing. I have been seeing so many policies that are amazing to help women during COVID. But I keep saying, if women don't have the basic money to survive, it doesn't matter if you offer them an online course on uh, how to create their own business. If they don't even have the money to eat and put food for their children that day, and then be strong enough to go into an online course. So we need cash transfer programs for women. Also, we need policies to help the women who want to get back to their work when they can, of course, but they don't have a, a place where they can leave their children uh, while they're working because these schools are closed. So we also need some types of policies that help these women. So, for example, if we're talking about single moms, these are the women that should get priority in cash transfer programs. Otherwise, they will, have, they will go to work and there is no way uh, they can leave their children alone. So we need policies that target specifically the most vulnerable women. And that's very important. Yeah. Thank you, Amanda, for really shedding light on those important policies. And I now want to turn to another issue we've discussed, and that's the surge of violence against women we've seen during COVID-19. And many people have referred to this as the shadow pandemic. So what are the unique challenges with addressing gender-based violence during a pandemic? And 
how can we create sustainable systems that will tackle gender-based violence not only during COVID-19, but beyond this time? So first thing, there are countries where it's clear that gender-based violence has raised because we have data, right? Because the calls in the helplines have increased. So we are aware of data. But we have countries where data uh, is not showing that. And why? Because women can't report. And why? Because they are living with their abusers. That's the first unique thing about gender-based violence mm-hmm. during a pandemic. So if before the pandemic was already very hard for women to report violence because they were living with their aggressors, now it's even harder. Because imagine yourself trying to take a phone and calling a helpline while your aggressor is sitting just behind you, right? So this is the first challenge. How we can create mechanisms and tools for women to ask for help without showing it for their aggressors. One way, for example, is by using WhatsApp. So in Spain, they have created a helpline in which women can ask for help by using WhatsApp. They can also speak to psychologists, to social workers. So that's a really good way. That's a way that the aggressor would probably think that the woman is just a woman is just talking to a friend or something like that, but actually she's asking for help. Another really good way is that companies that deliver food or deliver domestic uh, things like TVs or fridges and stuff like that, on their app, on their online app, there is a, uh, there is a way that women can ask for help. So they, they do it in a way that is very hard for someone who sees you using the app to understand they're actually you are asking for help. But then we go to the second challenge. So I ask for help, I report the violence, and then what is the next step? So we have the step of mobility. So how does the woman go from her home to a police station, for example? Uh, In Brazil, also, there is a a network of uh, online help for survivors that have made a deal with a company that offers taxis or stuff like that. And then now they have a partnership in which this this company offers drivers to take the women from their houses and go to the police station. So that's another way. Yeah. And I want to ask you about the UN's COVID-19 gender response tracker that I took a look at. And it was really alarming to see that only 25 countries out of the 164 nations analyzed have actually implemented policies that are gender sensitive. So what are some of the necessary public policies that governments should implement to mitigate some of these impacts that the pandemic has had on women and girls? So, okay, first of all, data, okay? I think that's the first thing. We need data on the impact of COVID on women and girls because from that, we can do work. Because also, if we have data, showing the impact of COVID on women and girls, even if it's not the national government doing something, international organizations can uh, intervene and do do something. And then collecting disaggregated data, as I said before, especially having a perspective of intersectionality in this sense. Right. The second thing is about training the people who will work on education, on health service, 
on uh, security policies, on social policies. Uh, so people who are really working what we call the, the street level officers, right? The people who work directly with the women and girls. So we need to train them so they are able to identify the violence or identify families who are in need of financial support, for example, and then talking with other service from the local network to respond to this problem. The third recommendation I would give is community awareness. Because of COVID, it's so hard for professionals to get directly in contact with people. So let's provide training for the community leaders so they are able to identify the needs of the women and girls, to connect them with the available uh, policies, to create dialogue with the government, uh, to let the government know what are the needs, what are the demands of the women and girls. So raising community awareness is very important. There are some countries in French, for example, the government have been using grocery stores as a focal point to offer counseling for survivors during the lockdown. I think that's very interesting. So this woman needs to go to the supermarket. That's probably the only place where she can go during the lockdown. And then she can get help. Yeah. Well, thank you, Amanda, for your time today and for raising your voice on these really important issues that are impacting women and girls around the globe and really thoughtfully providing us solutions as well to help alleviate these issues. Thank you so much. Next, to give you an expert glimpse on the impact of the pandemic on women in South Asia, I'm going to turn it over to Oxford Policy Pod correspondent Nandita Venkateshan, who's joined by Dr. Deepa Sinha. Dr. Sinha is an assistant professor at the School of Liberal Studies at Ambedkar University in India, and she is a regular contributor and expert voice to leading Indian publications on social justice issues, women's rights, and food security. Dr. Deepa, thank you so much for joining in. Uh, hi, thank you for having me. You point out in your own research that the closure of key public programs ma made many women vulnerable to malnutrition. Do you think the government has taken adequate steps to address the crisis? Not just me as an opinion, but based on the number of uh, surveys that we have done as part of the Right to Food campaign and also other organizations. What we have been finding is that this lockdown has had a severe impact on food security and the hunger situation of households, particularly of those belonging to uh, vulnerable communities, those where they depend on the informal sector for employment. And we must also remember that this is in a context where even before COVID, the levels of malnutrition, especially amongst women and children in India, has been very, very high. Uh, much more than what uh, the level of economic development would predict. And in this context, uh, with now increasing hunger, uh, the certain public programs like what you have for the school midday meals, and we have some supplementary nutrition programs for pregnant and lactating women and young children, since these have all been closed for almost a year, that little bit of additional support that families were getting particularly for these uh, members within the household, has also been closed. 
So what we are seeing is that there is increased hunger at the household level. And then because of closure of services, additionally on women and children, the burden seems to be even more. Dr. Deepa, I have seen that much of the media and public discourse in India around the impact of COVID-19 on women has almost solely focused on women in urban settings. How severe has been the impact on rural women, women residing in rural areas, and how different do you think has it been from the women in urban areas? The crisis because of the lockdown and COVID was Uh, of course, initially much more visible in urban areas because of the entire related migrant crisis where we saw uh, stranded migrants, families, men, women, children trying to go back to their villages. So uh, it it definitely hit the urban areas harder. Uh, But it's uh, the rural uh, women have also been affected. Although we don't have data, I can tell you the ways in which we are seeing they've been affected. Uh, One is the same thing that now even the migrants have gone back, there are more uh, mouths to feed, um, more people in the household to take care of. So the care work burdens have increased at a time when, again, there is not enough food and there is not enough work. Uh, Another thing, uh, because of related to this issues of domestic violence and so on have also gone up. uh, And back in rural areas, also jobs are not being uh, created in a context where rural women's employment has been declining in India over the last 20 years. It's already a crisis. Thank you. Um, Do you think that the recently presented union budget that was touted as the first big budget after after the pandemic, do you think it has acknowledged the impact of the pandemic on women or do you think it has fallen short of expectations on this front? The recently presented budget has been quite a big disappointment as far as uh, acknowledging any impact of the pandemic on women goes. Like we have been discussing, uh, and there is a lot of micro studies now, and there is uh, there's a lot of information to show what we were saying, that care burdens have gone up. Women have been worse hit uh, as far as employment goes than men, even in terms of their jobs and incomes being uh, recovered, that more women have lost jobs which they've not got back. Uh, Domestic violence has increased, hunger and malnutrition is an issue. But if you look at the budget, uh, the overall budget for the Ministry of Women and Child Development this year in nominal terms is less than what was allocated last year. So in this context, you would actually have expected a major increase because there is so much more of Uh, the need for relief uh, as well as the routine services. But what we see is that the overall budget has reduced. And then this year we find that in absolute terms that the budget has reduced. It's reduced for the entire ministry. It is reduced for individual programs when you look at them. So if you look at the main nutrition program, which is called Anganwadi Services, uh, again, in nominal terms itself, the number, the budget allocated has come down. Maternity entitlements, which is a, actually not a very big sum. It's a sum of 6,000 rupees uh, to pregnant women for their nutrition and uh, support during the breastfeeding period. Allocation for that scheme has come down. Uh, care services, uh, with this increasing burden of uh, care work and the schools being closed, uh, the allocations for the crash program, which is already a very tiny budget, that is almost not there now in this budget. Uh, So uh, it definitely does not meet expectations. And in fact, it has been quite disappointing, like I said, because it it does not even maintain the level at which 
it was there last year in the light of all that you said what policy interventions do you suggest according to you to undo this damage that has been done to women's during the pandemic india has quite a strong uh, social welfare services architecture in place i mean we have schemes for uh, like i was saying you have uh, supplementary nutrition programs you have pension schemes for uh, uh, single women you have work provision schemes where on demand you get work the first thing would be to step up on all of these revive all of these programs and strengthen them so for example if the work program currently is 100 days for the entire household for a year just increasing that making it an individual entitlement for example uh, similarly the school meals which would uh, give a huge support to women in terms of their uh, care work at home restarting that restarting the health and nutrition services and early child care services uh, the crash services all of these which exist uh, reviving them and strengthening them would be the first step the second is uh, to do particularly with uh, women's employment which is again not just covid but a long standing uh, problem which has become even more acute now because of covid so having some kind of special measures to um, help women access employment so which is not only providing jobs but actually the enabling environment uh, so transport safety child care maternity entitlements we know that all of this goes a long way in uh, enabling women to participate in the workforce uh, and this is the time that these things have to be done and um, if there is increased spending Uh, towards putting incomes in the hands of women we know that women spend on the right things uh, and they spend their consumers so that is that could also that is also good for the economy uh, at this time i mean if women have more wages they will uh, buy food they will buy health services for their children they will buy clothes they will buy consumption consumer goods which actually is good for the economy currently which is facing a problem of demand thank you dr deepa for such an insightful discussion and for providing your insights now to further explore this discussion from the context of brazil i'm bringing in oxford policy pod correspondent mayira gramani who's with marina gonzarali marina is a brazilian lawyer specialized in cultural compliance women's rights and diversity She's worked with women and LGBTQIA victims of violence for over 13 years and is the creator of Me Too Brazil. She also holds a master in legal sociology at the law faculty at the University of Sao Paulo and is state counselor for the Sao Paulo's Bar Association of Law. Hello Marina and thank you so much for joining us today. Our first question for you is what do you consider the main effects that the pandemic is posing on Brazilian women? I'm very happy to talk about the subject that moves me and it's uh my life vocation to work with um women and LGBT population uh in situations of discrimination or violence or abuse and the pandemic um brought to Brazilian women uh much more um um hard situation that there there already was So basically we are we are the fifth uh country in feminicide the homicide of women 
by their partners or only because they're women uh, in the world. And women, uh, besides uh, violence, and I, I think that's very important to say uh, before we get into that subject specifically, is that uh, the pandemic posed on Brazilian women a much more uh, hard and um, strengthened work at home, a domestic work. It's important uh, to remember that women are responsible, already they're responsible for uh, the care of the children, of the, the family, of the household. Uh, women are responsible for the elderly. They are responsible for all this uh, reproductive work but also the productive work of keep working as uh, their profession continues, uh, continued in, in home office, this uh, invisible but very hard and very um, strong job, um, heavy job, was uh, even bigger during the pandemic for Brazilian women, I think for all women, and we could feel that, we could... Uh, feel that with uh, mental health issues, with uh, overstress, with panic crisis, anxiety crisis, uh, even though if she, this woman was not suffering any kind of abuse or domestic violence, uh, she was for sure on her edge, on her limit, because the amount of work that was imposed uh, to women during the pandemic was even higher. Yes, thank you, Marina. And um, there's a study made by the World Bank that shows the increase of gender-based violence in Brazil during the pandemic. The study shows that between March and April of 2020, the first two months with constraints in the country due to COVID-19, feminicides increased a total of 22%. And the helpline for women dealing with violence, 180, had a 27% increase in complaints. Can you comment a little bit on this trend and why we've seen a surge in gender-based violence during the pandemic in Brazil? Violence, gender-based violence, domestic violence didn't increase because of the pandemic. Pandemic is not the cause of uh, the increasing of uh, these statistics. Uh, the cause of domestic violence against women and against LGBT people is the patriarchy, is uh, the sexism, is um, the discrimination based on gender orientation and, and sex uh, and, and gender identity, um, and sexual orientation, gender ident identity. Sorry, my English is a little rough. It's been a long time. I don't <laughs> even interview in English. So uh, that's not pandemic is not the motive. The motive is the structure, the inequality of power between women and men, inequality of power uh, in this relationship in the house, outside the house. What did the pandemic uh, do? The pandemic um, allowed the condition for this crime to happen more. Where, what do we know about gender-based violence? We know a lot of things. We know especially about the perpetrator. We know that he's close to the victim. He is her father, her husband, her uh, boyfriend, her brother, her uncle, her uh, grandfather, uh, uh, her neighbor, her uh, uh, father-in-law, 
we know that he has a close relation to her. And we know as well where these feminicides happen. Where do they happen? Where does this crime, uh, looking uh, from the point of view of health and public security policy, we know that this happened at home, that this happened uh, at the domestic space. So obviously during the pandemic, we had an increase on, this, on these calls and the situations on these crimes because the circumstances where this crime happened, the opportunities for this perpetrator, which was already an abuser before the pandemic, that's very important to stress, they increased. They increased enormously. So uh, we had also an increase on the numbers. Because of the pandemic? No. The pandemic doesn't cause the gender violence. Gender violence is caused by sexes, by inequality of power between women and men, uh, by the fact that we live in a patriarchy uh, world. But the pandemic caused, yes, the increasing of the opportunity and the situations where this crime is perpetrated. The next point I would like to go to is that you as a lawyer, Marina, You've been working to fight um, gender-based violence in Brazil for many years now. Can you tell us a little bit of how your work has changed since the beginning of the pandemic? This is um, it's a very good question because our, our work changed so much and I think it, it changed uh, on many ways for better because we are now able to reach out women through so many channels. Some things for better, some things for worse. But I think that one thing that uh, it's good news, so that we can focus a little bit on hope uh, after all this, is that because of that, something that we fought so much with government to be able to do, which was to do online reports, the official reports of crime for the police station and the internet for domestic violence. Uh, and with the pandemic, we started um, to do that. Finally, the government heard us and uh, created this online option. Wow, that's a very important change indeed. And building upon that point, my last question for you is, what public policies has Brazil put in place to try to mitigate the negative effects of the pandemic on women? None. <laughs> I would say none. I would say the, the very best they did was to create the online form for uh, crime reports of domestic violence. That was all. Because uh, the, the call 180, it was already in place. It's a policy that comes from EAS, uh, from previous governments. They actually um, um, made it smaller in this last year. We've seen a reduce in the budget a huge reduce. The minister changed completely. It was a minister of women. It became the minister of family. Uh, I think it's it's good. It's okay. It doesn't matter the name. As long as the work continues and the work did not continue. What happened is that social society, social community, the community, the, uh, the companies, uh, the NGOs, they are uh, working so much harder during this period because our government just really left a vacuum. So Marina, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invitation, Marina. 
Well, thank you for joining us on this very special bonus episode of OPP as we discussed how COVID-19 is affecting women worldwide. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to Oxford Policy Pod wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at OxfordPolicyPod underscore and on Twitter at OxfordPolicyPod. The executive producer for this season of OPP is Leanne Ryan Hume, and this episode was researched and produced by Nandita Venkatation and Mayira Gramini, and it edited by Alicia Aslan, Leanne Ryan Hume, and myself. We'll see you back very shortly.